Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jay Jaffe. Jay's a writer for SportsIllustrated.com and a frequent contributor to Baseball Prospectus. You can give him a follow on Twitter at J underscore Jaffe. That's J-A-F-F-E. Jay, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, good to be here. Well, Jay, let's start at the beginning, I guess. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. I grew up in a baseball uh, friendly household in, in Salt Lake City, and uh, uh, my dad uh, was a Dodger fan, and I guess I probably started watching baseball around the time of the 1977 World Series, maybe, uh, playing baseball in the backyard with him and, and, and my brother. Uh, I had a grandfather who uh, was also very, very into baseball and, and uh, very good at it back in his day, and uh, I guess uh, uh, he's the one who actually bought us our, our, our first gloves. And uh, also a Dodger fan, Brooklyn born, but uh, out on the West Coast by the late 40s. And uh, uh, I just, you know, I grew up, I learned how to read box scores when I was about eight years old, followed uh, the Dodgers through the 1978 season, reading the box scores, watching Monday Night Baseball, Saturday games of the week, stuff like that. And I still still remember that World Series and uh, uh, started reading about the game every chance I got uh, probably around the next year. Um, when I started checking out just about every baseball book in the library, and my grandfather would send me uh, books from flea markets and library sales like uh, The Summer Game and Ball Four. So like nine years old, I was reading Ball Four, uh, enjoying all the, all the creative four-letter words. Uh, but also, also reading about, reading about uh, uh, you know, reading Roger Angel and, and uh, appreciating uh, his perspective on, you know, like Willie Mays and, and the, the stars of the 60s and 70s. Uh, and then, you know, in the, in the, in the 80s, uh, I, I had a, a subscription to Sports Illustrated. I got turned on to Bill James when, they, when Dan O'Quinn did that column or did that article on him, uh, in, you know, at 80 or 81. Uh, bought the baseball abstracts and, and, and kind of, you know, started to understand the statistical side of things and, uh, you know, was collecting baseball cards all this time. But uh, um, that's that's the background there, I guess. This week, there was some news that Baseball Reference and Fangraphs are unifying their baseline for wins above replacement. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's kind of a you know a nerdy under the hood thing to 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 care too much about. Uh, It does affect me. That's what we do here, though. Yeah, sure. Oh, I I I understand. I mean, I think you know if you want to understand these stats, you do have to understand you know a bit about uh, what is under the hood. And given that replacement level uh, is something that you can get stats uh, pertaining to it from uh, baseball reference and from fan graphs to have two different scales that often diverge wildly on individual players because of methodologies and because of those scales, uh, I think, you know, maybe made it a little bit harder for people to accept, uh, you know, to, to rope insider uh, outsiders into it for, for fan graphs and, and, uh, uh, baseball reference to come to a common agreement, I think, maybe make, makes things a little, little bit simpler, uh, you know, in terms of engaging more people uh, on it. Uh, at the same time, I think, you know, there are, there are arguments to be made that it's not necessarily, um, you know, that one, one, one size fits all isn't necessarily the right way to go, and that, that there, you know, there, there are reasons to prefer a higher replacement level or a more dynamic replacement level. Uh, I had a few chats with uh, Baseball Perspectives' Colin Wires briefly on the subject about why BP was not uh, partaking in the in, in the agreement, uh, you know, as they were, and he, uh, he has, uh, uh, you know, done done his research, and and, and uh, I understand why he's why he's sticking with that. Uh, I don't want to put too many words in his mouth as as, as to why that is, though. But uh, uh, you know, I think it's I think it's good. I think. Uh, it, what it means for me from a practical standpoint is I have to be very careful about, you know, when I say, you know, talk about the value of a marginal win in the context of evaluating a contract, uh, because it's not say $5 million per win as, as it was last year or whatever. You got to go back and, and check the numbers. Uh, it's also, you know, when I talk about, uh, uh, my jaws hall of fame system, I got to go, you know, those numbers are going to shift a bit, uh, over the course of a player's career now, because the replacement level that was on Baseball Reference is now a little bit lower. You know, you've got guys like Lou Gehrig and Walter Johnson. You know, the top end guys maybe gaining a total of ten wins above replacement over the course of their careers, and, and you know, further down, uh, you've got some values shifting on a year-to-year basis, and so you got to redo the numbers again. 
I want to get your thoughts because you moved Jaws to Baseball Reference this year. It was on Baseball Prospectus beforehand. Were there players that on Baseball Prospectus maybe didn't fare so well that on the Baseball Reference system using their war did that surprised you? Yeah, one that, one that's a lot closer on, on Baseball Reference uh, who was on the ballot last year that sticks out as an example is Kenny Lofton who shows up as, as borderline with, with the baseball reference system. I haven't looked at the new, at the new one because he, uh, at this point, Sean had not uh, pushed out new, uh, new baseline, the new baselines for the position by position. But last year, uh, Kenny Lofton was very close, might've been right on the line. Uh, when you look at where he stood via baseball prospectus a year before he was you know a significant chunk down and a lot of it had to do with defensive value uh some of it also had to do with uh, offensive value but less of it but most of it was defense and, and you know when i when i see those situations i you know i think it's that's those are the areas that we have to tread carefully when we're you know making these assertions about who belongs in the hall of fame and who isn't if a guy's uh you know clearly not a Hall of Famer according to one methodology, but uh, another one shows that, uh, yeah, he's borderline. Well, I think you got to probably take it into account that, you know, you might the borderline at best in one system and way off in another is not necessarily right. Uh, Larry Walker is another one who, who improved, although I think if I remember correctly, he was more borderline, borderline in BP, and then you know uh, slightly above in Baseball Reference. That one I could see a little bit more uh, justification for pulling the switch for him. News broke today that Robinson Cano is leaving Scott Boris for Jay-Z and the CAA. Boris doesn't let his clients uh, typically sign before free agency. Cano has expressed an interest in signing with the Yankees. We think this means that Cano will likely sign an extension with the Yankees. What do moves like this do to the free agency class? And what's happening with free agents in general? Well, we've certainly seen a, a, a widespread trend towards teams locking up their own players and, and fewer and fewer hitting the markets. And, and I think in general, that's probably a good thing. Uh, you know, there's the, the age-old complaint about uh, how free agency has, has led to more players leaving their teams and, you know, the breakdown of loyalty and, you know, a lot of assertions that I think are, 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 are fairly misguided when you, when you think about the, you know, the hundred years war between labor and management, uh, that, that, you know, that preceded free agency or whatever. And the fact that, you know, ball players should have the right to determine where they want to work, uh, uh, you know, given enough service time and things like that. Um, I think, you know, it's probably, you know, in the short term, at least, it's probably good news for the Yankees if, if Cano uh, is willing to re-sign. I don't think he's he's going to grant them a huge discount, but uh, if he if they can work out an extension before he goes on the market, which would be uh, a break from the Yankees' uh, traditional policy, as well as a break from, from the way that uh, Scott Boris uh, did business, Cano's former representation – um, you know, to lock up, you know, to complete an extension before that, uh, and avoid, you know, him getting in some kind of bidding war where if it's, I don't know if it's the Dodgers or, uh, the Red Sox or the Blue Jays or somebody just, you know, could sneak, you know, sneak out of left field and, and throw stupid cash at them. The short term, the Yankees can't really afford to get, let Robinson Cano get away because he's their only premium up the middle player, uh, who's in his prime right now. And, you know, they Probably, you know, in terms of the value to the brand, when you look at, you know, the direction of where, you know, the careers of Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez and, uh, you know, some of the older guard. Are things not going well for A-Rod? Yeah, not so well. You know, the point is, is that the Yankees kind of need to turn the page from marketing around those players. And, and, you know, they want Cano to be that guy, you know, going into the, you know, the second half of this decade. Uh, because those other guys aren't going to aren't going to really be factors or, or as big of factors, so they need him. You know, the, 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 that said, if they get themselves tied up in a ten year deal, uh, like let's say ten year two hundred million dollar deal, uh, it could be a, you know a problem uh, down the road. You know, in that he's uh, you know more dead weight. You know, the way that Alex Rodriguez is going to be dead weight at the end of this contract. You know, the way that uh, Albert Pujols might be uh, a millstone out in Anaheim. Uh, there's a genuine risk there. The interesting thing here is the Yankees and the Red Sox tend to have winning records. I know the Red Sox had a terrible season last year, but that was really an exception in terms of their recent history. When they have winning records, it means they're drafting later. 
which tends to mean that they don't have access to the elite-level prospects. They're not drafting. They, the Yankees never had a chance at Bryce Harper, at Evan Longoria, at Steven Strasburg. They don't have a chance to draft those guys. They're not there when they pick. So if they're not getting players in the draft and everyone's signing their, their players before they hit the market, what are the Yankees going to do to get that star-level talent? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, and especially when you think about the way that uh, the draft has changed in the last couple of years with the new collective bargaining agreement. Uh, you now have you know stronger you know strong constraints on bonus money. Uh, you, you're allotted a bonus pool uh, based on uh, where you know the reverse order of, of record. Uh, so if you're drafting 30th, you could, you've only got X dollars uh, in which to sign uh, your top 10 picks. Um, and uh, if you go over that, you risk losing a pick in the following year. What you, the way the Yankees used to get around the system is that uh, they could draft guys who weren't necessarily uh, you know, likely to sign with other teams, but they could, they could throw top five pick money at a, at a 30th pick uh, and maybe you know, convince him not to go back to school or you know, to, to buy him away from another sport if he was a two-sport star. That didn't always work because they didn't choose, you know, choose their battles uh, as well as they might have hoped. They had some bad breaks in there too, I guess. Um, but that was, a way, that was a way to get around it. Spending internationally was also another way to get around it. Um, and that avenue is being, has, is being closed down uh, because uh, bonus money for international prospects is limited. Um, and there's even a move to institute an, an international draft, which uh, uh, there are no, numerous obstacles that won't, uh, uh, won't allow it to happen immediately. But uh, they are, there are, are talks that in, in which there might be one implemented for 2014. Um, it, you know, there's, there's just a lot of ways that they're trying to clo- you know, closing out uh, avenues by which uh, teams can compete. And it, it affects them differently. Uh, it, it tries to make them all a bit more the same. Um, really, what it comes down to is the, the best place you can spend money, uh, given those limitations, is on your own players. Better to, spe- to spend it to keep those high-value players, the Canoes, than to spend it locking up your more mediocre players uh, in the long run, I guess. Jay, you recently wrote a piece for Sports Illustrated, 20 Ways to Improve Baseball Right Now. Uh, Let's discuss some of those. The first one was make opening day a national holiday. Do you feel like opening day has lost some of its luster? I think it's I think it's celebrated, uh, uh, you know, to a to a good extent, uh, you know, around the country. Uh, It would be kind of cool to be able to take the day off, you know, if everybody got the day off of work so they could go to the ballpark if they wanted to or stay home on their couch and watch a quadruple header. You know, a lot of people have to have to spend a sick day. But uh, I think it would be kind of cool if there was a national holiday. I wish opening day was a true opening day. Every team played on that Monday. I understand doing the Sunday night game ahead of time. That's fine. But have every team play. Have 15 games. Have them start at 1. Have them go until 1 in the morning. Have 12 hours of baseball. Stop hedging. Stop doing this like three days of opening day and get them all, get every team playing, get every team into an opening day. Yeah, I don't dispute that. I mean, I, it doesn't bother me too much about the the, 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 the slower rollout Um but I, I certainly can see the argument that, that you make there. I think that it, it would be cool to have, uh, you know, the first game be in Cincinnati since that's the birthplace of professional baseball. I think it would be cool to see now that we've got uh, season round uh, interleague play to see uh, last year's pennant winners face off in a battle. Uh, I think it's probably it would probably be pretty cool to get the president uh, out to uh, Nationals Park to throw out the first pitch uh, uh, as traditional uh, as traditionally has been done. Um, you know, I think all of these are, are, are fun ideas that would just uh, raise the stature of opening day just a little bit more. Although, you know, I kind of feel that at least uh, yesterday and, and whatever, we got we got a pretty good uh, opening day around around baseball, some pretty good uh, uh, visibility. I totally agree. Opening day is still the best day in sports. Number two, revamp the blackout television policy. Yeah, you know, there's it's I mean, it's great that you can get out of market games Um in order to, uh, so, so, you know, if you're on the East Coast, you can watch a West Coast game, uh, you can watch, you know, just about any game uh, if it's not bumping up against a, a, uh, uh, a national broadcast. But there are blackout rules that pertain to national broadcasts. You can't, uh, uh, you can't use your MLB TV app or your extra innings package to see uh, another Saturday game. 
uh, as it stands. I think eventually there's going to be some adjustments to that uh, coming next year. Uh, but you're also in there are certain parts of the country that you. I mean, if you're, you know, first of all, you can't see the local market game. Uh, you know, if I'm a Yankees, if, if I, you know, if I'm a New Yorker and I wanted to watch the Yankees on my iPad, I I can't do it through my MLB TV package. I have to do it on my TV. Uh, or pay a significant chunk extra in order to do that, uh, you know, like a double a double bill. Uh, I'm already paying for cable. Why can't my cable company give me, you know, an app that does that or whatever? Um, and then and then there are people who are not not close enough to be going to a ballpark regularly who get caught in territories that are overlapping, and you know they're blacked out from multiple teams. I mean, uh, Iowa, uh, Las Vegas. Uh, there are there are markets that are just absolutely screwed by this, and, and uh, if you look at a map, uh, which I have linked in the article, uh, you can see that uh, they're just it's kind of nonsensical. As a consumer, of course I want this. Of course I want to be able to watch every game. So I was watching the Yankees Red Sox, but I wanted to watch the Red Sox feed instead of the Yankee feed on Monday. I'm not able to do that because I'm blocked out here in New York. Have to watch it on TV. So as a consumer, I say, of course I don't want to be blacked out from anything. This, to me, of all the things on the list, was the most unlikely to actually happen because everything we just talked about with all these huge contracts, they're happening because of cable money. There are ways that this that this is going to evolve. I mean, look, if you look, if you go back five years. The landscape was very different. If you go back 10 years, it's completely unrecognizable. Uh, five years from now, 10 years from now, uh, it's going to look very different. And I think we're going to see some evolution in this. Um, the national, the big national broadcasters you know, are, are, are going to maintain their rights. Um, but I do think teams will get a little bit more flexible in terms of how they reach consumers. Uh, that seems to me uh, to, to be a strong likelihood, even if it's not everything that we hoped it might be. I'm going to skip around a little bit. One of the things on your list was adopt the DH in both leagues. I couldn't agree more. Tell me why you think that would be a good thing. Well, I think it's an inevitability when you look at now the, the year-round interleague play or season-round interleague play. For some reason, that, that term just uh, – I've been stumbling over that as I've talked about this in, in, in several contexts. You know, With that, National League teams are at a disadvantage if they're not uh, employing the you know, uh, a reasonable caliber hitter you know, to be their regular DH – uh, which they might need, uh, you know, m- more than just a few concentrated periods per year. You know, you saw some teams like maybe they would uh, uh, get Jim Tomey for early in the year, like the Phillies did last year, or you know, bring up Willie Mopena for for that two week period. <laughs> or whatever. I mean, like, you know, there were guys that they specifically targeted, you know, teams specifically targeted for that period. And once they were done with them, they you know might discard them, uh, you know, send them back down to the minors or trade them or something like that. I've studied the matter. Uh, ALDHs have decisively outhit NLDHs uh, in, over the course of, of the history of interleague play. Even when those NLDHs were better hitters, uh, you know, while playing other positions, uh, possibly because they were playing, they were, they were DHing when they were hurt, um, possibly because they were just just weren't uh, uh, used to the the process of being a DH. It was kind of like the, the pinch hitting disadvantage, where you see a much lower performance. But there's no way we're going to get rid of DH. It's been around 40 years. Those are, those are high-paying jobs. The union's never going to let them be eliminated uh, in this context. I think it's more likely that eventually we're going to see DHs happen. I don't see any reason to let pitchers hit. The excitement of Clayton Kershaw's home run on opening day notwithstanding, uh, you've got, uh, uh, I think, uh, the 129 batting averages with like you know 160 on base and 160 slugging uh, last year numbers in, in that vicinity uh, and fairly consistently that bad over time. You just got some horrible horrible hitters there. Um, the increased specialization of the game keeps pitchers from getting the time they need to develop as hitters. Uh, an increasing numbers seem to be getting hurt. We've seen career altering injuries in, in, in interleague play when pitchers have had to bat. Chien Min Wong comes to mind. Uh, we've seen other career altering injuries with you know pitchers running the bases. Mark Pryor's one. Jake Peavy is one. Uh, not necessarily due to interleague play, but just you know the general extra extra exposure uh, that pitchers have to injury when doing something that they're not adept at. Uh, I just you know I just don't see why. Uh, we keep pushing this issue. We should. Uh, it's hard enough to stay healthy as a pitcher as it is, uh, given that half these guys end up on the disabled list for one reason or another over the course of a season. I agree. And one of the things that the DH detractors say is that not having the DH adds more strategy. And I think that's sometimes true. But for the most part, I think there's about as much strategy when to pinch hit as there is of going for two points in football. 
the decision to go to kick the extra point is essentially automatic. And the decisions when to pinch hit for your pitcher are essentially automatic. I don't think it's that much strategy if it's an obvious decision. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that that's that's a very good point that sometimes doesn't get made. You know, that's, there, it's a it's a if it's a no brainer, you can't really call it you know a decision in the same way. Look, AL AL managers probably do have less to do relative to NL managers when it comes to managing around that. Who doesn't appreciate the art of a good double switch? Um, you know, that said, I think you know there's. There's a lot that comes with the you know the 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 pitchers hitting that I just I don't think we need. I mean you know pitching around the number eight hitter, yay! Woo, you know always fun to see an intentional walk. <laughs> um, you know more bunting from the pitchers, great. And, you know another fucking thing I don't you know, I don't I don't need to see all that much. I'm sorry if I'm cursing on your on your broadcast here. If you need to delete those out, I, I fully understand. You can uh, curse all you want. Okay, that's a great fucking news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I whatever I th- I think. It, We've seen, you know, I, I don't have a huge problem with there being two brands of baseball. Viva La Difference. I grew up an, a National League fan. I now probably watch, I still probably watch as much National League baseball as I do American League baseball. But, you know, and, and you know, emotionally, I, I'm fine with, with, with their coexisting. But, you know, from an intellectual standpoint, from a rational standpoint, as I study the matter, I just don't see any really good arguments to keep pitchers hitting. I'm going to combine the next two on your list as I think they're very much related. It's expanding instant replay and calling the umpires. Would you support a automated system and getting rid of umpires altogether? No, I think that's probably a little bit extreme, even though I, I yell about it on TV uh, or on Twitter uh, as, uh, as, uh, as often as, as seems necessary. Um, I do think that, that expanded instant replay is, is crucial. I don't, think you, I don't think you really can have a you know a, a, a you know review process for every ball and strike. I think that's wildly impractical. Um, you know maybe the technology will be there down the road to automate balls and strikes. I don't know. I don't have a problem with that. If if, if there was something that was reliable, uh, it, it bothers me that there are you know every umpire has a different strike zone, has a different interpretation of the strike zone, and, and you know acts like a you know a, a hard ass authoritarian. Uh, you know, if you if you question his definition of it that particular day, uh, that to me that just you know it makes the it makes the game about them rather than about the players. And I want the game to be about the players and about what they're doing on the field rather than uh, what the umpire is doing. So uh, I, I definitely think that uh, you know we need uh, better you know better accountability for the umpires, the ability to you know enforce some discipline against them if they're not heeding to the you know some uniformity about the strike zone and i think we need to we need to back them up too uh i think instant replay will do more to help them than it will to hurt them it's not you know a a lot a lot of times we look at the replays and we find like oh god you know they got that close call right but when they don't let's get let's get it right instead of there being seething rage over a blown call just (laughs) just fucking fix it and move on and if it takes five minutes to sort it out well you know it's probably worth it the lack of expanding replay just makes baseball look bad. If there is technology out there that can help your game, you should use it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think you know they they do they are committed to to expanding it next year. They didn't want to do a half measure this year. I think we'll see meaningful expansion of replay next year, and I look forward to it. A few of the things you mentioned in your piece were international play and expansion into international markets. How far away do you think we are from expansion? into international markets. You mentioned Puerto Rico and Montreal. Do you think we could even go further into Japan or maybe even Australia? I think as aviation technologies improve and as we're eventually able to travel to Japan in Australia in six hours, the way we can travel to California in six hours, I think you'll see that. But I still think that that's 20 years I away. Think, yeah, I think we're, we're a ways off. I mean, look, the, the travel, I think the travel is impractical. I think there's there's going to be a certain amount of protectionism when it comes to uh, getting base, getting major league brand baseball into countries where a competing major league exists, like in Japan. You know, I think there's there's going to be some some resistance to that. I don't think we should be pushing more travel, uh, you know, to you know overseas on a regular basis. But I would like to see kind of you know the for the 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 items that you mentioned. You know, we're in the spirit of furthering. Uh, the good feeling from the World Baseball Classic, you know, I think it would be neat to send maybe one series a year over overseas, whether it's to Japan, uh, Australia, Europe, um, 
the Caribbean, uh, you know, South America, maybe. I mean, just these emerging markets that we've, uh, uh, you know, we've we've gotten a little bit more familiar with and seen the progress that baseball has made, um, you know, over the last several years. Uh, I think it would be good to, you know, reward them with, uh, you know, a two or three game series uh, between two major league teams over there, the way that we've done with Japan in the past. I think that would be that would be a tremendous draw and uh, further the international growth of the game. Now, as far as, far as my expansion teams, there's not really a whole lot of momentum towards expanding to 32 teams, but uh, they're ne- you're never going to get contraction, at least along the lines of the way that uh, MLB ham-fistedly tried to implement it uh, uh, 10 or 11 years ago. Um, I, eventually, I think 32 teams is a nice, you know, is, is a nice number because it, you know, you, 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 uh, you'll always, you, you'll, you'll be able to get away back from the, uh, the interleague play. You'll have even numbers in every league. You can have four, four team divisions if you want, or two, eight team divisions or whatever. There's a lot, there's a lot you can do with 32 teams that you can't do with 30 teams. Uh, I suggested two markets. Uh, I think there are probably, you know, half a dozen for which you can make very good cases, including Portland and uh, Charlotte and uh, uh, the uh, New York, New Jersey area. But uh, I'm particularly attracted to the idea of returning baseball to, to Montreal because they got screwed um, and because baseball has a very you know rich history there, including uh, Jackie Robinson's professional debut even before the Expos came to town, uh, and Puerto Rico, which has uh, <clears throat> long been a baseball hotbed, but since being subjected to the draft in the late 80s or early 90s, I forget the exact date, um, We've seen a bit of some waning of enthusiasm, but uh, uh, you know there's a legacy that we, we see on display in the World Baseball Classic. I actually got went to the 2006 Classic uh, in San Juan, in San Juan, and uh, had a great time there. Baseball crazy fans. I think if you if you were to be able to put a team there, you'd get a lot of uh, uh, Caribbean tourism, uh, you know, from other countries coming over there as well, uh, as well as uh, Americans going down there. And uh, I think it's a, a reasonably sized market. Another item on your list was penalized performance-enhancing drug use via stronger suspensions. Before we get into that, I want to ask you about why baseball gets all the heat with PEDs. Hito Turkoglu is a basketball player. He plays in the NBA. He is not a star. He got a big free agent contract, but he's at least as good at basketball as Melky Cabrera is at baseball. He tested positive for steroids. He was never called a disgrace to the game. No one said his contract should get voided. It got very little attention nationally, and there were certainly no calls for tougher penalties or testing in the NBA. Why does baseball get all the PED heat? I think there's a, there's a few reasons. Um, well, for you know, for one thing, uh, there's the perception that uh, steroids have, have you know PEDs have distorted the, the numbers, and that's because the three players who passed Roger Maris's home run record, uh, single season home run record, all had uh, links to PEDs: McGuire, Sosa, and Bonds. Uh, Bonds obviously passing Hank Aaron's record as well. Uh, those are things that, you know, they've violated the sanctity of the record book that stood for hundreds of years. And, and you know, let's forget all about integrate, you know, the, you know, the lack of integration before 1947 or uh, the fact that uh, at any given year uh, in the first half of the, of the 20th century, three teams probably weren't really trying. Uh, they were selling off their players in a fire in Marlins like fire sales routinely. Uh, players were gambling routinely. Players, players were gambling. Uh, there were all kinds of things like that. You know, okay, so that's that's one issue. The second issue is I think you've got a lot of uh, ginned up outrage from uh, a faction of the media that underreported the story 15 to 20 years ago uh, and can't seem to let go of the fact that they were that they were duped. And this includes some of the biggest names in the industry. Uh, some have admit, admitted culpability, uh, and you know when it comes time to 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 cast a ballot for the Hall of Fame. Uh, they acknowledge that. I think Buster Olney of ESPN is one who I think has taken a, a, a very defensible stance, and, and you know, along those lines, uh, there are others I think who, you know, did a lot to god up uh, certain players, and uh, you know, kind of uh, don't quite hold themselves accountable in the same way. Uh, I think we see a lot of manufactured outrage on the subject, uh, you know, from 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 a lot of these types. Uh, I think there's, you know, it's reflective of a general graying of the media and uh, pressure to, uh, you know, pressure for, for page views and competition uh, by, you know, holding more and more extreme opinions. You know, and I think also the fact that baseball has developed a more transparent system and that we do, that it does catch people 
opens it up to criticism because it's like, see, we've still got a problem. When in fact, it's like, hey, the, the program's getting more sophisticated. We are catching more people. Baseball has by far the strongest uh, testing regime of, of any professional sport right now. And uh, I think it's something to be proud of. The NFL, one of the things that was negotiated into their new CBA was that the players would take HGH tests. It's been a year and a half. They have not done one HGH test. Why do you suppose that is? Well, that was actually – I just saw something about that where an independent arbiter said that uh, – it ruled that the, the validity of the HGH test, which I believe is the same HGH test that baseball has agreed to, uh, that there's reason to question the scientific validity of that. I, can, I think that's a – that's something that you know is that's worth exploring more. I'm actually hoping to maybe uh, get uh, uh, get some time to look into that uh, more myself because I do write about the issue a fair amount at at, uh, at SI. Um, but that said, I mean that you know you, there's there's just not a whole lot. That, the penalties are much lighter in the NFL. Uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, uh, care over that. There's not a whole lot of care about player safety in the NFL. Although it's that's. They've been forced to change that uh, belatedly over the past several years. Um, you know, I think all of these factors uh, come into play. I think you know, that baseball's antitrust exemption also comes into play. That's why you had, uh, back in 2005, you had the congressman able to you know, drag Bud Seelig and, and several stars uh, you know, before Congress to, you know, for that dog and pony show. So I think it's, a, it's a, you know, kind of a perfect storm that's put baseball in, in this position and uh, – you know, it goes back to a uh, a long, long path of institutional neglect uh, on the part of the players, the owners, the commissioner, the media, and even the fans. Uh, you know, for not uh, uh, demanding action on the problem much, much sooner than it, than it eventually came about. Of course, we can't talk about PEDs without segueing right into the Hall of Fame. One of the things on your list was reforming the Hall of Fame voting process. What changes would you make to the process? First and foremost, I think, I think it, I'd like to see some voter reform. I think it would be nice to uh, retire some of the voters who no longer have any affiliation with baseball. Uh, you know, I am, there's certainly some that uh, have, you know, the, have, been, have earned the right to, to keep voting you know, for a period of time after they, they stepped down from their regular posts. But, you know, you've got guys who are writing about, you know, Olympic ice skating now. You know, why do they have a vote? Uh, things like that. Richard Justice came on during Hall of Fame season, and Richard said he, he estimated it was at least 30% of people that haven't covered baseball in 20 years are voting for Yeah, I think that, that number sounds a little bit high, but, you know, Richard's been in the BBWA a hell of a lot longer than I have. I've been, I'm, I'm, I'm in, just started my, my, uh, uh, third year here, um, you know, still almost eight years away from getting to vote. If I if I manage to survive in this industry long enough to to do so, thirty percent. If that's it, yeah, I, I, you know, I think it would be uh, it's be a good idea if you called those uh, uh, called those roles and and got rid of uh, uh, some of the dead weight there. The, especially the, the protest votes, the guys who were mailing back the blank ballots. You know, I have this mis, misguided notion that they're making. Uh, an effective statement over the over the steroid era, uh, or whatever. I'd get rid of the character clause on the ballot because I think that leads to a lot of uh, misguided thinking with regards to uh, what what the job of the voters is. I mean, the Hall of Fame is not a church. It shouldn't be an attempt to sanitize the game. Uh, we've got you know all kinds of miscreants in there: segregationists, spitballers, uh, prohibition era alcoholics, domestic abusers, and I don't want to glorify any of them, but uh, they're in there because of their ability to play baseball, you know, had a major impact and you can't tell the story of the game without them, uh, to pretend that you can't tell the story of the game, you know, that you can tell the story of the game without Mark McGuire or Sammy Sosa or Barry Bonds or Roger Clemens is just, it's silly. I, I just don't think you can do that. Um, so those are, those are some of the things uh, I'd like to see broadcasters have a, have a, have a role in the vote. Uh, I'd like to see more members of the electronic media have a role in the vote. I don't see any reason why MLB.com writers uh, who put in the same amount of service time, uh, you know, aren't allowed to vote or aren't allowed in the BBWAA. Uh, supposedly, it's because they work for teams. Um, I've never, you know, I, 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 at the same time, you've got MLB.com writers who did put in their ten years somewhere else who are allowed uh, to vote. So that's a, just a really weird double standard there. I'd like to see more 
scouts and general managers voting as well. Or by I say more, I mean some. It's essentially what you're doing with Hall of Fame is you're trying to objectively evaluate talent. It seems only logical that you should have professional talent evaluators be a part of the process. Well, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying there. I mean, I think to me, you know, this is this is a media vote. And so but you should be incorporating more media into it, whether, you know, radio, TV broadcasters, um, you know, front office, uh, you know, front office officials. I don't to me or scouts. It doesn't quite make sense to me to bring them into this into this the same way. Um, their standards are different. A scouts, you know, a scout is looking at a guy's future potential. He's not, uh, you know, he's not evaluating uh, a career. Uh, you know, in the same way. I mean, look, you talk to, you talk to the prospect experts, talk to guys like, uh, you know, you know, people that I'm lucky enough to have worked with and and, and can call friends like Kevin Goldstein or or Jason Parks at Baseball Perspectives. It's almost like they lose interest in a guy after he's kind of, you know, up for good, um, you know, because they're on to, they're on to the next thing. They're searching for the next, uh, uh, the next top prospect and and, uh, uh, they'll go back and they'll revisit what they had to say about a guy, but they're not nearly as attuned to uh, his career after he leaves their immediate field of view. But what about someone like Brian Cashman? You don't think Brian Cashman would be capable of voting? Well, I think he's, you know, he's got a, a different position. I mean, he's, you know, he's worked with some of these players for a long time. I think if you let the GMs into it, I, I, I mean, I honestly hadn't considered the idea before. I, my first, my impulse, though, is to say um, you're going to get uh, – uh, you're going to get problems there. You're, you're going to get biases there with guys voting voting for their own players. Uh, I don't want it to turn into a, the Gold Glove vote, uh, where you know <laughs> where you've got managers and coaches, uh, you know, paying half attention uh, and only going on the small amount of uh, you know information that they get from what they see. Uh, you know, if you're a member of the media, you're supposed to be paying attention on some level you know, to all to all the 30 teams as they come through. If you're a front office guy, I don't I don't know that you're getting that same perspective. Although you certainly have to know know all the players on the teams. You don't get enough, you know I don't know that you get as much time to watch. But it's interesting though because one of the things that's lacking with the voting process is accountability. Once you're voting, you vote for life. What do you have to do to lose a vote? Yeah. There are people that don't vote for Cal Ripken, and there are people that don't vote for Mike Schmidt. They vote. Some yeah. jabroni voted for Aaron Seeley last year, and he's still going to vote this year. Yeah. I, I, one thing that I didn't include here that if I, think, if I went back and did it would be, yes, uh, let's you know, make the vote completely dra- transparent, publish every ballot. Uh, the, you know, the, they've moved to that in the, uh, in the uh, annual awards voting uh, I think they should do that with the Hall of Fame. I know there is some discussion of that within the BBWAA, but I do think uh, uh, it'll be a few years before we come around to that. Um, and and uh, maybe uh, maybe we'll see that, though. I think that would be a great thing. I think that not only should the votes be made public, I think they should be accompanied by a written description as to why you're voting that way. And no one is asking for like a full saber-length bio on these guys, but a simple, what numbers did you look at? Who amongst his contemporaries did you compare him to? What Hall of Famers did you compare him to? That's all. Most writers or, or many writers do a similar column like that anyway. I think not only make the votes public, but give an explanation as to why you're voting some way. I think that would go a long way. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a reasonable idea. Moving on to uh, two things that are, are linked and they're, they're important. It's uh, enhancing the stats on scoreboards and on broadcasts and television and, and stopping the war on advanced statistics in general. Uh, those things are linked. I think it's um, – I think the way that baseball is presented, it's still average home runs and RBI. It still wins and saves. With the exception of Clubhouse Confidential, MLB Network is full of average home runs and RBI. That's all you see. On broadcasts, when batters come up, it's average home runs and RBIs. You never hear war on a broadcast itself. Well, I, you know, I think I think it, it would be nice to 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 see those things make their way in. And I actually wrote about this again today at, at, at SI dot com uh, with regards to uh, broadcasts incorporating more advanced statistics. And I think it goes it actually goes far beyond just using war. Um, you know, explaining what batting average on balls in play is. Getting away from wins and losses as as, as the most important evaluators of, of evaluating tools of pitchers, you know, understanding uh, defensive metrics, 
uh, and being able to 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 use those uh, in the broadcast. You know, putting up on base percentage. Uh, you know, at ballpark scoreboards or, or on 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 uh, uh, TV broadcasts, which some teams are actually doing. Um, there are a handful of uh, on-air personalities who are uh, integrating sabermetrics, you know, into their uh, into their work. There are guys like David Cohn in the Yes booth uh, for the Yankees, uh, Len Casper for the Cubs, uh, John Shiambi at uh, uh, at ESPN. Um, the, what spurred this was the, uh, an article in the New York Times uh, with, uh, about the Astros' new radio crew, which is Robert Ford and Steve Sparks, the former knuckleballer. Um, there, are, there are a few other examples here and there. Uh, Dave Fleming of the Giants is, is another one. Um, so we're seeing it. It's, it's a slow introduction, a slow evolution. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, if, you, if you talk to those guys or if you read what they've, what they've said in their articles uh, or their interviews about the topic, you know, you, you have to move slowly. Let's not forget this is a broadcast. It's broad. It's trying to reach as broad an audience as possible. That's, that's by definition, that's what it's trying to do. You can't afford to alienate that audience, so you've got to move kind of slowly. Oh, one I forgot, Steve, uh, Steve Berthum uh, of the uh, Diamondbacks uh, is another one who's, who's uh, working more advanced stuff into, into his uh, uh, broadcast as well. Um, so, you know, they're out there and they're, they're identifiable and, uh, uh, you know, teams are, you know, moving towards that. I think I'd just like to see it a little bit more. And, you know, as, as I said, there, I would like to see uh, an, end, an end to this culture war, um, this ongoing uh, kind of old media, new media divide or whatever, uh, this fear that, you know, God forbid we should be using something besides these, these you know, hoary old stats uh, to determine baseball worth. Um, that, you know, it's just, again, going back to what I said before, it's people ginning up page views and ginning up outrage where there doesn't need to be any, uh, impugning the integrity of people who, uh, look at baseball differently than they do the, you know, the mother's basement cracks, uh, shit like that. It's just cowardly and unimaginative and, uh, reflective of basically people who are, you know, have reached the tail end of their careers and are fear of being, you know, left behind. Uh, because they haven't changed times. So, um... Well, I totally agree. And I find that the living in your mother's basement and you're just on your spreadsheets not watching games, it's so ridiculous. And it's not true. I mean, I don't know anyone in the sabermetric community that doesn't watch games all the time. All the people I follow on Twitter are tweeting about games they're watching all the time. They're yeah. not watching games is grossly inaccurate. Yeah. But the we can be obnoxious too. And I had Craig Calcaterra on earlier and he... He oh, proudly so obnoxious that Oh. He proudly defended his right to be a douche. That's what he said. And, you know, he was going after Heyman and everything else. But I think that the mother's basement stuff that they say is countered by you old dinosaurs don't know what you're talking about. And that's not helpful either. So I wonder how can the sabermetric community do a better job presenting their information to gain more mainstream acceptance? Because, again, we're the ones trying to get accepted. They're not. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And, and I've, ha- I've, been, I've been afforded some opportunities in this regard to – you know, to to be in the BBWAA and to, to to have access to press boxes and locker rooms, uh, to get to do spots on Clubhouse Confidential, and I've actually been able to you know have on air and off air debates with guys like Heyman and uh, uh, you know a, a, a few others, and and uh, you know I think maybe I've taught them a, a thing or two, maybe maybe I've maybe I've learned a thing or two. I've certainly learned a thing or two about diplomacy, and you know it's a lot tougher to to. Um, you know, demonize somebody who you have to look in look in the eye uh, uh, when, you, when you when you come into a, a press box. That's for sure. Or you're stepping onto the set uh, of, of uh, uh, you know TV, and you're about to get gored. Um, you gotta you know you gotta treat people with a little bit more respect than you might in, in a you know in a blog or whatever or on Twitter. Um, so you know, I've I've learned from that, and uh, you know, I managed to managed to get along with. Uh, uh, with some of these, some of these uh, older writers, and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, there are one or two of them who who do actually uh, look at my work, and they may not vote necessarily based on what I say with my jaws system, uh, but they do at least acknowledge that it's, uh, you know, that it's that it's an input that they uh, might consider. Uh, so, you know, I, there's, I think there's there are slow steps. I think part, you know, it starts it starts with treating people with respect more than anything else, and and uh, if you you know, you, if you see these guys 
uh, at the winter meetings or whatever, and you talk to them and you see how hard they're working and what they do for, you know, for their jobs, uh, or, you know, at the ballpark as well. Um, and appreciate just how much work goes into what they do, uh, and understand that you're, you're, you're not that different in, in terms, you know, you're different in terms of how you carry out your jobs, but you know, you're, you love baseball. They love baseball. Everybody's trying to get their, have their voice heard with their type of story. I think you can, you can maybe appreciate more that the, that we can all coexist, uh, in this, uh, in this field. Jay, before I let you go, I want to get your quick predictions on to who will actually get into the Hall of Fame this year. You do a lot of Hall of Fame research. You created your JAWS system. The ballot is already overcrowded, and this year joining the ballot are Greg Maddox, Frank Thomas, Mike Mussina, Tom Glavin, John Smoltz, and Jeff Kent, all players that should at the very least deserve serious consideration. I think Maddox is the only shoe-in, which is unfortunate to think that Frank Thomas somehow wouldn't be a shoe-in, but Maddox is the only guy that I think is a lock. I do think Thomas... And Glavin will squeak over the 75%, and I think Craig Biggio will get in as well, um, which would be great. You would actually have the old-school benchmarks. Maddox has his 3,000 strikeouts and 300 wins. Glavin has 300 wins. Biggio has 3,000 hits. Frank Thomas has 500 home runs. Thomas is also a part of the 300 batting average, 400 on base, 500 slugging club, which is even rarer than the hits or the home run club. You have your old-school baseline numbers, modern numbers, wins above replacement supports those guys. It would be great if all four of them get in. That's what I see. What do you see? That's a good question. Uh, and I haven't really considered this uh, for a couple of months because I kind of put the Hall of Fame stuff in a drawer and step away from it after immersing myself in it for two months. Um, going back to it, I do think Biggio gets in uh, 68% on the first ballot. I think he's, you know, 3,000 hits. Uh, I think I think he'll get in. Uh, I think we're we're a ways off from Bonds and Clemens getting in. They're about halfway to where they need to be, roughly speaking. Maddox, I think he'll definitely go in on the first try. Uh, I don't know that Frank Thomas will go in on the first try, although he should. Uh, I imagine he'll get uh, somewhere in the 60% range and then go in in a year or two. Uh, I think Bagwell, he and Bagwell uh, might be uh, uh, kind of neck and neck up there. Uh, Bagwell got uh, just shy of 60%. I think he'll get close. I don't think he'll get in this year, but I think he'll get in eventually. Uh, Pete, there are steroid questions with Bagwell that there are not with Thomas. There, there are steroid questions with Bagwell that are not that, the, that are not there with Thomas, uh, but there's also a lot of ignorance that, 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 is, that implicates uh, every slugger of the era uh, and devalues the numbers to a certain extent. I mean, Thomas is probably the exemplar of uh, the guy who I think we can – you know, point to is probably clean uh, because he was the he was the only only player to to uh, active player to to cooperate with George Mitchell. Uh, he was always very outspoken about uh, uh, the need to clean up the game. Uh, if there's anybody who who has some credibility on the topic, it's probably him. And yet, at the same same time, I don't discount the uh, the voting body as a whole uh, their their ability to collectively be a jackass. Uh, they certainly were this past uh, this past voting cycle, and it was uh, uh, a sad thing to see, uh, a sad little protest. Well, the interesting thing with Thomas here is that he's going to have 10% of voters who automatically won't vote for him just because it's his first year on the ballot. So right. there's 10% gone already. So he's already at 90% he has to deal with. He's going to deal with at least another 10% who have a problem with that he spent half of his career as a DH, even though yeah. his peak came exactly. in first exactly. base. A, there, are, there are a lot of things that are going to work against him. And I think those you, you just hit the nail on, on two of them that, uh, uh, that are worth mentioning. So. The PED stuff would be complete ignorance. I mean, if anyone if anyone should get a vote for the PED generation, it should be the lone cooperator of the Mitchell Report, a guy who was an early whistleblower who voluntarily testified in front of Congress. But you're right. People will see his physique and see his home runs and say he must have used. Right. Right. Trust nobody. Um, Tom Glavin? Tom Glavin probably gets in uh, on the first ballot because he's got the 300 wins. But look, they've they've kept 300 win guys out before. It wouldn't surprise me if they do it again. Uh, there's a whole, there's just, there's so much competition on these ballots. There's so many qualified Hall of Famers uh, in this bunch. I mean, you could make strong cases for Mike Messina, uh, even Jeff Kent. I mean, I, my Jaws system is isn't maybe not as rosy on uh, on Kent, for example, um, as uh, the more traditional measures might be. But I certainly w- could understand why. Uh, you know why a voter would 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 see him as a as a potential Hall of Famer. 
if he weren't uh, in danger of being crowded off the ballot by 11 other potential Hall of Famers. And you'll get, you'll get people who rationalize, well, you know, Greg Maddox doesn't need my vote. He's going to get in, so I better vote for my pet candidate instead. Um, and, you know, there's, once you get to these competing, um, competing motives, uh, these competing priorities, you risk uh, some very weird outcomes like what we just got. The nice thing with that ha- that Tom Glavin has in his favor is he passes the sniff test, and let's face it, that's the primary way a player gets into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I, and I think you know the just the Glavin, you know Glavin and Maddox. There's there's a nice story there with uh, you know the two of them going in side by side, given that they were teammates for so long and so instrumental to uh, uh, the Braves' uh, success, at least as far as uh, you know winning the the uh, the National League East and winning uh, uh, several pennants, if not. Uh, than the one World Series, um, you know, I think there's a reasonable suggestion that uh, uh, that he could get in. Yeah, it'll be an interesting uh, it'll be an interesting Hall of Fame class. I do think that those four will get in: Maddox, Thomas, and Glavin. I think Biggio will join them. It's our our long national Jack Morris nightmare is over. This is his last year on the ballot. I don't think he'll get in by the writers, although I do think he'll eventually get in one way or another. Another thing I think will happen, which will so that's five guys. If those four get in and Maddox uh, Morris is going off the ballot regardless, I think Palmero, Sosa, and Maguire are all going to fall off this year. So that's eight guys that will be removed from the ballot, which does remove the overcrowding issue. I don't think McGuire and 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 Sosa are that close to falling off. McGuire seventeen percent last year, Sosa twelve and a half percent. They're not going to fall to zero yet. Uh, Palmero's been hanging on. Um, I think you'll see those guys continue to linger. The, you know, Palmero could slip below ten. I mean, below five. He's below ten now. Um, Morris, I think there's still a chance he gets in. 67.7 percent last year. Uh, it's, we, we've seen upticks in the past that have carried guys over the threshold. Uh, it would not surprise me at all if he got in. Well, we've got that to look forward yeah, to. That'll right? be exciting. Yeah, we got that going for us, which is nice. When you're voting, you'll be in the middle of the Omar Vizquel debate, which will have replaced this Jack Morris nonsense, which is going to kill our souls for the next 15 years. So we've got that uh, going for us, too. Yeah, sweet. Thanks. I'm really looking forward to, the, to that debate. You've been listening to Jay Jaffe. Jay is a writer for SportsIllustrated.com and a frequent contributor to Baseball Prospectus. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Jay underscore Jaffe. Jay, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast. Right, my pleasure. Thanks a lot.